Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 3, verse 1. Revelation 3, 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6 in the ESV. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And as you are able, friends, would you now stand for the reading of God's Word? And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. And now, friends, let us pray. Lord, thank you so much for these letters, for these churches, for the church the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see clearly the situations of these various churches, to understand these words in their original context, to read well and intelligently, but also, Lord, to not let these letters stay in the first century, but to hear them afresh as your word to us today. Lord, we think of Carolyn Nagoff and her son. I just can't help but lift him up to you now and pray that you would do wonders. You are a wonder-working God. And do wonders in our own hearts as we reflect on these words together. Make us more like you, Jesus, please. In Christ's name, amen. Well, so far, friends, uh, we've looked at letters to the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And so this is the fifth of seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. While other churches receive positive and negative feedback, or sometimes just positive feedback, The church at Sardis really only receives negative feedback here. Now, like I said before, my task is to expound these letters as they are written, even if they don't seem to apply precisely to what our church is dealing with today. I do think, though, that there's much for us to learn in each of these letters, and this letter 
includes the same basic features as all the others. And the first feature to look at here is the address. So let's just dive right in then at verse 1, Revelation 3, verse 1. Here it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now we've talked about the fact that angelos, the word translated angel here, could very well mean messenger, representative, or even pastor. So it could read to the messenger or the leader of the church in Sardis, right. Now, Sardis was located about 40 miles southeast of Thyatira in Asia Minor and 50 miles east of Smyrna, and it was at the juncture of several road systems, important road systems in Asia Minor. A number of trade associations flourished there, including those of textile workers, goldsmiths, and even builders. Religious life in Sardis centered mostly on the goddess Artemis and the god Zeus Poleus was his name. And both of these deities were thought to be guardians of civic welfare, almost political deities. Archaeologists have excavated Sardis, and recently they discovered the Sardis Synagogue. It's called Bet Alpha. And this is thought to be the largest known ancient synagogue and was built in phases from the 3rd to the 7th century A.D. In this synagogue, 80 inscriptions, uh, mostly regarding donations, were found, which shows that many of its members were wealthy citizens or even political office holders. I say this because it means that ancient Sardis played host to a Jewish community that was much larger and wealthier and more powerful than was previously imagined. Now, this short letter in Revelation is, of course, tailored to the church of ancient Sardis and their particular situation in the first century. But remember that this letter would have been heard or read by the six other churches that are mentioned in Revelation. So, to the angelos of the church in Sardis writes... And then we get our link to the vision that John received before in chapter 1. We see some details here, uh, some features about the Son of Man who is now speaking, which connect this letter to certain aspects of that initial vision, and which I think relate to the specific situation of the church at Sardis. It says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, remember in Revelation 1-4, John says, opening the book as a kind of letter, he says, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, in the sermon on that passage, I talked about how some take the seven spirits to be a collective reference to the Holy Spirit, while others, however, think this is a reference to the seven archangels who reside before God's throne in heaven. 
and who stand ready, always ready, to carry out God's commands in the world. You'll see that in later visions, these angels, these spirits, they go out into the world to accomplish whatever God commands. And we also see that these seven spirits are intimately connected with the Son of Man's eyes, vision. That in a way, they are always patrolling, almost surveilling the world. These spirits are then aware of what's going on with the faithful to protect them, encourage them, reward them. And they're aware of what's going on with all the rest. Ready, always, it seems, to act in judgment. So the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, stars, The Son of Man in John's initial vision had seven stars in his right hand, remember? And these seven stars are said to be the angeloi, the angels, the pastors of the seven churches. So either these are spiritual beings in charge of each community or the leaders associated with the churches. But either way, the Son of Man has the leaders, he has these communities in his right hand. And here, these details are deliberately invoked. Well, after this, we get a criticism. It says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In other words, you have the appearance of life. On the surface, you're alive, but really, really, you're dead. Literally, in the Greek, it says, in name, you are alive, but in reality, you're dead. The primary criticism, then, is that this community in ancient Sardis was beautiful clean and shiny on the outside, on the surface. But on the inside, they were lifeless. You can think of the many texts in the Gospels, in James and elsewhere, which say about those whose faith lacks fruit, who are not truly living for Jesus, that despite what they say, what they claim, they are really dead without life. The church at Sardis thus had the reputation of being alive, but really within, they were dead. Well, in verse 2, then, we get a command. The first command in this letter, which is based on the criticism at the end of verse 1. And the command is pretty simple. It says, wake up, wake up. Now, often in biblical literature, death and sleep are compared. So to wake up is almost to say, be revived, be restored, be raised, as it were, from the dead. 
You could say, be watchful, be alert. And it goes on, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So it seems that there were some in Sardis who had not quite died in the sense that they still possess authentic faith, but that they are slipping towards prioritizing appearance, the surface, over the core. Now, of those who have not quite died, it says, again, to the leader of the church, revive them, strengthen them. They're not yet without hope. The command is to wake them up out of their slumber of death and superficiality, to revive those members who had not yet fallen away completely. He says, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, this criticism supports the command of verse 2. You need to wake up and strengthen what remains because I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It's curious here that the Son of Man refers to the Father as my God. This personal touch, I think, adds drama and intensity to the verse. Works, remember, are mentioned in almost all of the letters. Their works, he says, are not complete. They're not full. They're not authentic in the sight of God. Rather, they're empty like mere shells, okay? Well, we then get another command in verse 3. It says, Remember, then, what you received and heard. Or remember the manner in which you first heard the gospel and received the apostolic teaching. Remember the authenticity, the genuineness of your faith at that time. And then he says, hold on to that. Retain it like the stars in his hand. Keep it and thus repent. Repent. They had become superficial, concerned with appearance, with surface, what they looked like to outsiders, while inside they were dead, lifeless, and inauthentic. Their works were not genuine, were not complete in the sight of God who sees into every heart. And so the Son of Man commands them to remember, just like the church at Ephesus, to remember what it was like for them at first. When they first received the gospel and were authentic in their love for Jesus and were not so concerned about surface appearance. He says, remember that time, how you received the message joyfully and heard it. Hold on to that and thus repent. We then get a warning in the second half of verse 3. It says, if you will not wake up, and this is repeating the same verb from before in verse 2, if you are not alert, if you do not awaken from sleep, I will come 
like a thief. A thief. This connects to the many, many texts in the Gospels which speak about the return of Christ being similar to the arrival of a thief in the night. A thief. Now, just like with a thief, we don't know when he will come and must be prepared at all times, so it is with Christ. But I, I think the comparison is especially apt here because a thief's arrival is violent, abrupt, and unwelcome, I would say. And in the same sense, if the church at Sardis does not repent of their hypocrisy, Christ's arrival will not be perceived as pleasant or welcome, but rather like the arrival of a thief in the night. He'll come with judgment. Well, he makes this parallel explicit by saying, you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The coming of the Son of Man into an unrepentant church at Sardis will neither be pleasant nor welcome, but will be abrupt, imminent, and ultimately terrifying. Well, then we get a positive but in verse 4. It's translated yet in the ESV, uh, which really means but. But you have a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. I mentioned the textile industry before. Sardis was known for that. And the city produced fabric, clothing, and linen of many sorts. To soil one's garments is another way of saying to sin, to go astray, to become unclean. So the superficiality of the church at Sardis is compared with the soiling of a garment. But some of the believers at Sardis had not yet soiled their garments. And the Son promises that they, assuming they remain faithful, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. White garments, as you may know, were often worn by priests and royalty in this ancient context. And a bright, unstained white garment would have been dazzling with light reflected on it. Garments like this indicate high status, and they would have stood out in the midst of non-white or stained garments. There are some in Sardis, therefore, who have not yet soiled their garments, who have not yet died and can be revived still. The command for these is to continue in that way, to retain the authentic faith they had at first, and if they do so, they will walk with Jesus in royal white, for they are worthy, it says. What a promise. Well, verse 5 contains another promise, which follows the same formulaic language as the letters before. It says, the one who conquers, and conquering here means the one who retains the authentic, sincere faith they had at the beginning, 
the one who hasn't fallen into superficiality, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, like a priest, like a king. And it says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. The book of life. Now this may be an allusion to Exodus 32, verse 32. A text in which Moses intercedes for Israel after they've sinned with the golden calf. And says, now please forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. That's what he says. The image of a book in which the names of the saved are written and the threat to erase a person's name from that book are both extremely widespread ideas in the Old Testament uh, and in early Judaism. If you look at all the literature of the Hebrew Bible, Second Temple Judaism, early Christianity, you'll see that three types of heavenly books are mentioned. Let me just go through them. First, the book of life is said to be a heavenly record of those who are considered righteous or worthy. A list of names of those who are actively righteous in the covenant at that time, the book of life. The book of deeds is also mentioned and serves as a record of the good and bad deeds a person has performed during their life. And lastly, we have this book of destiny, which is sometimes called the heavenly tablets. And this apparently records the history of the world uh, or the destinies of people before they are born. So John is aware of all of these traditions, but I think his mention of a book of life seems to also parallel city registers or census books in antiquity. Now, books existed, they literally physically existed in public places, which kept a record of the living citizens of a given locality, recording who belonged in a certain place politically at any given time. One scholar notes, in some places, and this is striking, in some places in the Greco-Roman world, the names of criminals were blotted out of the city register immediately before execution before judgment. Now, friends, we need to remember that Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And I don't want you to throw tomatoes at me, but such a book of life, a physical book, a literal book, does not actually exist somewhere in a room. Arguments about the implications such a book holds for predestination or eternal security, they break down once we see that the book is a metaphor. The idea of having one's name erased from or blotted out of a book of life, a register of citizens of the new creation, is a metaphor of judgment which is meant to compel the believers at Sardis to repent. Revelation is not systematic theology. 
written by some scholar in his office. It is pastoral theology, always intended to produce a real response among real people. So the image of removing names from a book of life is meant to compel these believers to remain steadfast and faithful. It is not meant to answer our questions about uh, when those names were written, who can be taken away. That's not the point. Well, it goes on to say, friends, that the one who conquers, I will confess or profess his name, this is the Son of Man speaking, before my Father and before his angels. Now this, of course, recalls Matthew 10, 32, or at least is pulling from the same source. That verse reads, Everyone who will confess me before people, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And in 2 Timothy 2, it says the same, but includes before angels. Throughout the Bible, such confession of another person's name in the presence of others connotes recognition, honor, and glory, especially for figures like warriors, officials, and kings. For the Son of Man, for God Himself to publicly confess your name before His heavenly court is to honor you and praise you for your faithfulness and worthiness in a heavenly realm. Friends, that is amazing. So the one who conquers by maintaining sincere faith will be clothed in white robes, a metaphor to connote royal status and privilege, His name will not be removed from this register of names listing the citizens of God's new world. And His name will be publicly confessed before the hosts of heaven by Jesus Christ Himself. Wow. Well, finally, we get this closing refrain of verse 6. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so again, as always, we see that these are not the words of a human author, John, but are rather the words of God, the Spirit, spoken through the Son of Man and meant to compel the believers of ancient Sardis, meant to compel the believers of modern Freeport to wake up and stand firm in the faith. In this letter to the church at Sardis, we see an example of superficiality and hypocrisy. You have the appearance of being alive, but really inside you are dead. Just like the Pharisees, whom Jesus upbraids in Matthew 23, the Sardian believers are more concerned with the appearance of godliness than the reality. Friends, I have heard countless stories of persons who grew up in the church and eventually abandoned 
both the church and the faith for one reason. Hypocrisy. The very people who say they value X, Y, and Z go on to live in ways that are totally opposite. The church's witness, remember, it's light-bearing, lampstand-like function, is compromised, even nullified, by the poison that is hypocrisy, superficiality. For some reason, certain portions of the church continue to focus on outward appearance, on the surface, when what truly matters, what has always mattered, is not what's on the outside, but on the inside. 1 Samuel 16, when they came to the sons of Jesse to anoint from them a new king, Samuel looked on Eliab, the tall, handsome Eliab, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But God said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or his stature. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Matthew 23, they, that is the Pharisees, do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love places of honor at feasts and in the synagogues. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of bones and uncleanness. That was Jesus speaking. The church's witness depends not on its outward appearance, which often serves as a cover for inward toxicity. The church's witness depends rather on what's inside on an authentic, growing, always repenting heart of grace, humility, and love. I'll tell you, friends, that, that will shine through whatever clay, whatever shell is on the outside. What I mean to say is no matter how beautiful, how ornate, how brilliant we seem on the surface, if there's nothing but bones within, Christ won't be witnessed at all. The church at ancient Sardis is called to wake up, to be alert, and to revive what is dead within. Likewise, we are called to focus not on outward appearance, not on the surface, but on the heart of grace, truth, and love that is the heart of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us your heart.
It's a heart we could never manufacture, no matter how far our technology has come. It's a heart that points us to a realm beyond what we can see today, but a realm that is somehow accessible to us even now. Lord, help us to not get distracted. Help us to know what is truly important, of value, to focus on that, to let you help us focus on that. Reorient our hearts to you. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us life, new life today. In Jesus' name, amen.